Bible as you're able, please take your copy of the Scriptures. Turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And if you're able, stand with me as we come now to hear God's Word read and preached this morning. Today we're going to be giving an introduction really to the next three chapters in this epistle. So we will be coming back to these verses again, Lord willing, next week and for the next few weeks. But today we'll read these first 11 verses as they do introduce a new theme and section in Paul's letter to the saints in Corinth. Hear now the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last year we spent the entirety of our time in 1 Corinthians in just one chapter of this letter, chapter 11. And then because of the lateness of the year and the travel schedules and various other factors that were involved, we decided we would just suspend 1 Corinthians at that point because there was not going to be sufficient time last year to be able to cover chapters 12, 13, and 14 before the beginning of Advent. And so we come back now, a new year at the beginning of the year, and we return to where we left off last year at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you might say, well, why, why couldn't we have simply preached through chapter 12 and then come back this year in chapter 13? After all, that is kind of the, the wedding chapter, isn't it? That, that chapter is about love, and this obviously isn't. So, but, but of course, you may already know that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are a new unit in this letter. 1 Corinthians, we've said several times over the course of this series the last few years, 1 Corinthians is the most topically arranged of all of the books in the New Testament. It is certainly the most topically arranged letter that we have among the apostolic writings. Paul is addressing various questions that the brethren in Corinth had sent to him. We see that in chapter 7 and verse 1. He's working topic by topic, question by question through each of those issues. And prior to that, in the first six chapters, he's been addressing some other concerns that were not mentioned in the Corinthians' recent letter, but were mentioned by some of the messengers who had come from the church there and said, you know, maybe there are a few other things, Paul, you want to talk about. There are a few other things going on that they neglected to mention, such as that the church is being torn apart by factionalism. They're dividing themselves and naming themselves according to different men and personalities. They're 
there's not real unity. They've got a member in good standing who's in an incestuous relationship. Some of the men are going and visiting the brothels. And there are a few things, Paul, that you might want to say. And so Paul does that in the first six chapters of the letter. But as we move through 1 Corinthians, it's easy to outline. You can see when the subject changes, and in fact that's indicated even in the way that some of those new sections are introduced, as we'll see in just a moment. But when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, it almost seems as if Paul loses his train of thought. And if you're not reading carefully, that might be what you would conclude. A similar mistake is made in 2 Corinthians, but you'll have to stick around a couple more years for me to show you that one. In chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, all right, we know what this is about. We we go through chapter 12, we're talking about the body of Christ and the various members and the various gifts given to each member and the way that that is manifested in these spiritual gifts that Paul will have so much to say about. And then in chapter 13, it's all about love. And it really does seem to be a passage just suited for weddings, And then in chapter 14, we get back to spiritual gifts. But of course, these three chapters are all one section with one key idea. And chapter 13, if divorced from chapters 12 and 14, will will really be misunderstood profoundly. And the reverse is true as well. You will not understand what Paul is trying to say in chapters 12 and 14 if you omit the key material in chapter 13 that is set in the very midst of it all. Well, as we go into chapter 12 today, I want to try to introduce this larger conversation because I'm persuaded that these are issues that Paul is speaking about that were not only troubling the church in Corinth, but have been troubling churches, especially in the West, although not only in the West. Some of these ideas have spread to South America and Africa and now to the continent of Asia. We have, unfortunately, as American Christians, exported a lot of bad theology And these are ideas and questions and issues that have troubled churches in in many, many places. The question of charismatic gifts and how exactly we are to understand them. And I decided as I was working through this passage last year, preparing, I thought, to preach it then, that really we would not be doing justice to the material if we just simply dove right into the letter. Uh, My original plan was to preach the first three verses of chapter 12 as an introduction to the whole, but I decided that we needed to back up even further. And I don't want this to be a merely academic or theological inquiry. I'm not, I'm not intending to lecture on the history of a, of a doctrinal question. What I do want to encourage you to do is pull back just a little bit and understand what the conversation is about. And be prepared for Paul's discussion of it. And to understand, I hope, the real key point that will come especially out of chapter 12, but to some extent will be important for the whole section. And that is the emphasis that Paul places upon organic communion as part of the Spirit-filled body of Christ. That's what he's really dealing with. There was no controversy per se between charismatic and non-charismatic churches in the first century. Those are modern divisions and distinctions that we make in kinds of congregations. The place of these gifts, the exercise of these gifts in Corinth was creating a real problem But it's not as if the church in Corinth was charismatic and the church in Ephesus was was cessationist. That that wasn't a difference in the kinds of churches that there were. 
Unfortunately, we live in a world today where we do have different kinds of churches that are divided and distinguished on this issue. What Paul is trying to teach them that was important for them to understand is even more important, arguably, for us today. And that is to say that everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who has been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been baptized by the Spirit, he'll say in chapter 12, into the broader body of Christ. And that body is spirit-filled. And that body is living. And that body has Christ within it. He is the head. We are the members organically connected to Him. And unless and until we see that unity, we will continue to be torn by divisions of various kinds and many of them unnecessary. Well, we have noted that many of the sections in this letter can be recognized by the explicit way in which Paul transitions. Let me just remind you of some of the examples of this. This is not even all of them in the letter. But in chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Chapter 7 and verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Chapter 8 and verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Chapter 11 and verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Chapter 11 and verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. And then the text that we came to this morning, chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... I do not want you to be ignorant. Every major section begins by introducing the topic that Paul is going to address, whether in that one chapter or in one section of a chapter, as in chapter 11, or across multiple chapters, as in chapters 1 through 4 and 8 through 10 and here in 12 through 14. And each of those introductions is characterized by some similar language that's even more obvious in the original text, in the Greek text, especially when Paul moves to answering the questions in the letter from Corinth. When, we, when you get to chapter 7, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. You can see that he's moving step by step down some kind of a list that the Corinthians have given to him. And so he tells us what this next section is about in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual something. So your Bible probably says spiritual gifts. That's the way that the New King James renders it in most, most English versions. But you might notice, depending on which Bible translation you have, that the word gifts is italicized because that word is not actually in the original Greek text. But even that, use of italics is a little bit misleading because the underlying word is itself a bit ambiguous. And, and, and there's a question about how exactly to best communicate this, to best translate this. Spiritual gifts is the option that is usually chosen and probably is the best the best choice. But this word pneumaticon is a plural form that can mean spiritual things or spiritual persons or spiritual gifts. 
as we have it in most of our Bibles. Now, I think the rest of the context makes it clear that it is gifts that are received from the Holy Spirit that are in view here. For example, down in verse 4, he goes on to say, there are diversities of gifts, these charismatic gifts is what he's referring to, but the same Spirit. He'll say at the end of the chapter, verse 31, earnestly desire the best gifts. These are the spiritual things that Paul is addressing from the beginning of the chapter. But I want you to think for a moment about the fact that so much of what characterizes this conversation in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is the pride that Paul had rebuked in chapters 1 through 4. You remember the Corinthians were a very gifted church, but they were unfortunately a very proud church. And they were exercising these gifts in a rather arrogant way. Some of the more gifted ones might have imagined that they were the truly spiritual persons. Concerning spiritual gifts, spiritual things, spiritual persons, some of you spiritual persons are not acting as spiritual as you might imagine yourself to be. They were puffed up because they had certain abilities that other believers didn't have. Because I'm able to prophesy and you're not, that makes me superior to you. Because I'm able to preach in tongues and you're not, that makes me better in some way. The spiritual gifts given by the Spirit for the edification of the body have now become an occasion for some Christians to imagine that they are the more spiritual people because they are more gifted in certain ways. In chapter 12, Paul is going to discuss the common origin and the common purpose behind all of these gifts. He says the Spirit is the source of all of these gifts. Every one of you who has some ability has received that ability, that gift, from the very same place, from the very same person, the Holy Spirit of God. And you've received it, even though there are many different kinds of gifts and many different ministries being exercised, you've received whatever you've received for the very same reason. And that is to build one another up, to minister grace to one another, to grow together to the glory of God. He says in verses 4 to 7, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And this is true, by the way, not just of the miraculous spiritual gifts, these charismatic gifts that are in view in chapters 12, 13, and 14. It's true of any ability that God has given you, any opportunity. Whatever you know, whatever you're able to do, wherever you are able to serve, that is a gift of God. That is the work of God in your heart and in your life, and it is for not your exaltation, but for the blessing of God of the body. He says in verse 11, one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. But tragically, those gifts then, as today in many places, have given occasion for pride and had led to further division in the church there. The Christians in Corinth had turned God's grace into a reason for boasting. And I don't have to tell you that that continues to be a problem in the 21st century, 2,000 years later. How often are we proud of what we have received from the Lord? What do you have that you did not receive, he asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? What is it that makes you differ from another? What is it that makes you superior to someone else? Where is our pride? It is... Pride concerning matters that God has 
blessed us, uh, areas where he's led us, where he's enabled us, and we didn't have anything to do with it. Charismatic gifts then divided rather than edified Christ's body, and so too gifts of God's grace do too often today. And that leads then to chapter 13, which is not a standalone chapter on the beauty of love. It's rather an intrinsic part of the argument throughout this section. He says the way of love is the more excellent way of serving God. It's greater to serve God by means of love than to have the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing. In fact, all of those gifts and activities would be meaningless without love. Love is the necessary way. All of these others are only contingent. In fact, these other ministries would be worse than meaningless because if they're exercised apart from love, they would actually be harmful. Harmful to your soul and potentially harmful to others as well. And so when you're reading chapter 13, you're not, you're not shifting topics. You're not thinking outside of what Paul's already been saying in chapters 12 and will say in chapter 14, but you're rather seeing the solution to the division that runs through the entire discussion. And then in chapter 12, Paul will get down to specific instructions to regulate the use of spiritual gifts for the good of the congregation, for the glory of God. This is very similar, by the way, to the structure that you see him use in chapters 8, 9, and 10. If you could think back for just a minute. In chapter 8, he introduces a topic, the question of eating meat sacrificed to idols, meat that had been dedicated to a false god. He introduces that and says there are some brethren who imagine they are strong because of their position with regard to this issue, and some brethren that are regarded as weak. And he kind of lays out the groundwork and says we ought to recognize our brothers in Christ, whether strong or weak, as brothers in Christ and act in love toward them. Chapter 9 seems to lose the thread. It seems as if Paul shifts topic because he begins talking about his own ministry and the sacrifices that he's made that were unnecessary and the the way in which he's disciplined himself. And you say, what what does that have to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Then in chapter 10, he begins applying those principles to the specific questions, what do you do when you go into the meat market? What do you do if you get invited to someone's house? What do you do if someone wants to have a business meeting at the idol's temple? And he begins applying those personal principles that were illustrated in his own ministry to the particular situations that the Corinthian saints would find themselves in. That's exactly what he does in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, he says, here's the issue, and we are all one. We are part of the body. We're supposed to be working for one another's good. And the real key is the principle of love. And then how do you apply love to these particular questions? Well, how should a tongue speaker behave in the assembly? How should a prophet behave in the assembly? How should other ungifted people behave in the assembly? And he begins working through that in a structured way. He wants them to behave in an unselfish and Christ-honoring manner rather than in the proud and selfish manner that too often had been the case. And in chapter 14, he will say that everything done, especially in the church assembly, which we'll see is the context there, is to be done decently and in order. Every Presbyterian's life verse right there. <laughs> decently and in order. But what does that mean? It doesn't just mean according to the order of worship printed you know, in the bulletin. It doesn't just mean according to the, the principles outlined in the book of church order. It means done out of love with reverence for God, concern for a brother, to the mutual edification of the body of Christ. 
And that really is what holds together the instructions that Paul gives in chapter 14. Now, one of the challenges in working through this section is trying to decide how to refer to the gifts that are under discussion. These gifts are associated with particular offices and particular roles in the church. They're not all offices themselves, but some of them are. For instance, later in chapter 12, verse 28, Paul will say this, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, then prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all prophets. Are all, prof, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is obviously no. He says, earnestly desire the best gifts. But the very point is that these are different gifts and that they're associated with different roles in the body. And some of them are, in fact, offices. There is a difference, as we'll see later in chapter 12, there is a difference between prophesying and being a prophet. There was a difference between prophesying on, a, on an occasion and being a prophet. There were prophets in the church to whom Paul was writing. Now our later studies, I think, will show that these gifts are most clearly and necessarily associated with the apostolic age and with the apostolic office. That doesn't mean that they were only possessed by the apostles. Clearly they were not. Many of the saints in Corinth had one or more of these gifts. In fact, when Paul is introducing this letter to the brethren in chapter 1, verses 4 to 7, he says, I thank my God that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, so that you come short in no gift. Corinth was unusually gifted. You could imagine a scenario in which some congregations in the first century would have very little charismatic ability, very little charismatic giftedness. But that was not the case in Corinth. Although their appearance, the appearance of the gifts in this church was associated with the apostles, it was not limited to them. And so many referred to these abilities and activities simply as spiritual gifts. Now they will say, for example, one modern proponent, quote, a spiritual gift is when the Holy Spirit manifests His presence and imparts His power into and through the individual believers to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity so that they might faithfully and effectively fulfill certain ministry tasks for the building up of the body of Christ." End quote. Now, the problem with that definition is that it doesn't account for the specific abilities that are in question in chapters 12, 13, and 14. That's a, gr that's a great statement. A spiritual gift is when the Holy Spirit enables a believer to do more than he could in his mere humanity to serve Christ and his body. Yes and amen. But that's not all that Paul was talking about here. You see, Paul's talking about something more than just that. I would argue that that kind of gift is possessed by every believer to this very day. And that you have been exercising those kind of gifts this morning and will throughout the day. And many of you in various ways throughout this week. Yes, every believer receives a gift from God. Maybe more than one. Every believer has the Spirit of God working grace within us for mutual edification in the glory of Christ. But that wasn't what was tearing the church in Corinth apart. It wasn't that general spiritual work of God. It was the gift of tongues. It was the gift of prophecy. 
It was the ability to heal people directly in the name of Jesus. It was these kinds of activities and ministries and competencies that were creating the problem. And not all Christians agree that those gifts and those uh, functions continue to operate in the church today. In fact, I would tell you that I don't believe that those kinds of gifts described in chapter 12 are still active in the church today. But I wouldn't want you to think then that I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is working grace in us all. That the, 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 the kind of spiritual gift that that, that author was talking about, that, that I would deny that that is operating. No, that, that is true. That is still working in you. That is, God willing, working in me. But I'm not a prophet. And I cannot heal in the ways that were described in chapter 12. I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than most of you. A couple of you can speak in tongues much better than I can. But I don't have the gift of tongue speaking. And any of you who have heard me try to speak in tongues can say amen. He doesn't. For sure. You see, it's those kinds of things that were actually in view here. And those are the kinds of questions that continue to divide brethren even to this day. The Holy Spirit certainly does gift every believer for ministry and certainly continues to work powerfully in the church today. But the question is, does he work in the same ways that he did then? Does he give the same gifts? Does he call people to the same offices? Are we still in the same apostolic era? Now, we will probably use several different terms in our study today to describe these abilities and activities, and not just today, but throughout our study of this section. I want to clarify at the outset what we're talking about. The gifts in this section are signs of power associated with revelation. They are signs of power associated with revelation. That doesn't mean that all of the gifts are themselves revelatory. If you are healing someone... That is not necessarily a revelation per se. But when do we see Jesus and the apostles healing people? We see them healing people in association with direct revelation. Jesus, for example, in a passage that we recently studied, forgives the sins of a paralytic being lowered through the roof in a room and then, because some in the crowd doubt his ability to forgive that man's sins, he says that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. He heals that man in order to confirm the authority and power to do the greater work of forgiving his sins. That's what we're talking about. Signs of power associated with revelation. These are demonstrations of divine supernatural power in the context of the coming kingdom of God. Speaking in tongues, for example, was a sign of judgment and was a witness to unbelievers. We'll see how Paul develops this in, in chapter 14. It doesn't mean exactly what you think it means, perhaps. It is a sign of judgment, and yet it heralds salvation. The gift of prophecy was for the instruction of the church during the early period when the New Covenant Scriptures were incomplete. They didn't have a New Testament. They had what you call the Old Testament. They had a Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. That was their Bible, and they had some apostolic letters, some correspondence from Paul and the others beginning to appear and beginning to circulate. But how do we know what God would have us to learn in a particular place on a particular issue, if we have an incomplete Bible, we have prophets in the church at that time who were there for that very purpose. 
Even if someone believes that these gifts continue to be given and exercised by Christians today, they should be distinguished from the more ordinary spiritual gifts that we find in other places. For example, we read providentially Romans chapter 12 this morning. And what did you see? Each one has received faith, a measure of faith from God, and should use that grace in his ministry to one another. But most of the things mentioned have nothing to do with any kind of supernatural sign of power associated with revelation. When you serve one another, do it in love and by faith, as God has given you faith and grace to trust in him. When you, when you lead Lead as Christ would lead. When you exhort, exhort as the Father exhorts His children. That do, do this in, in keeping with the faith that God has given to you according to the grace that God has given you. That's an important spiritual gift. But it's not the spiritual gift that's in view here. Another distinction that has to be made is between the spiritual gifts of this passage or the apostolic sign gifts and the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5 and elsewhere. The fruit of the Spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is the evidence and outcome of a spirit-led life. It's the byproduct of faith and obedience. It's the evidence of one's sanctification. And the Spirit gives the grace necessary to enable that fruit to grow, but the fruit of the Spirit is not the gift per se. Your love, your joy, your peace, your self-control is not the gift per se. It's the result of the gift. It's the outworking of the grace. So don't confuse these kinds of spiritual gifts that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 with the fruit of the Spirit that we all are called to cultivate and put on. Most of the time in this series of studies, I'm going to use the term spiritual gift less often. I will still use it some. But more often, I'm going to talk about the sign gifts or the signs of power or the apostolic gifts, or miraculous spiritual gifts, in order to try to keep clear in your mind the difference between the way that the Spirit is working in you and the way that He was working in the church at that time. And when we come to these questions, there are three main camps that Christians have kind of sorted themselves into over time. And this is especially in the last 50 years. Christians subscribe generally in this, in this question and in these passages to one of three positions. First, there are charismatics. Now, those are most often associated with Pentecostal churches or some related ecclesiastical group. They will usually, not always, affirm the need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as a type of second blessing. So you will have your baptism in water in the name of the triune God, hopefully, unless you're a oneness Pentecostal, but, but ordinarily there's the baptism in water, but then there's a need for a second blessing, that the Spirit's going to bless you apart from that water baptism, and that second baptism, that spirit baptism, is evidenced ordinarily by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, most often the ability to speak in tongues. And in that charismatic group, ordinarily, the view of tongue speaking is that it is an ecstatic spiritual or angelic language. Uh, you're not suddenly speaking in Russian. You're not suddenly speaking in Greek. You're not suddenly speaking in Esperanto. You're suddenly speaking in an angelic language that is not spoken by men except by the ecstatic blessing of the Spirit of God. A second camp is the continuationists. And this has gained a strong foothold in Reformed communities in the last 
couple of decades. Continuationists believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit described in these chapters continue to be given to and operate in the church. But continuationists are usually more restrained in the way that they exercise or in what they believe about these gifts. So their services may sometimes include prophetic utterances, sometimes, but unlike charismatic churches, they're not regularly speaking in tongues in public worship. Many continuationists seem to hold the view that they do because they think that the Bible requires it, or they're just not convinced that they can affirm cessationism, but their conviction, at least the continuationists I know, and I know a lot of them, uh, it seems almost as much theoretical as practical. It's as if we're, we're wanting to say, yes, I want to leave the door open because I don't want to limit God in any way, but what does, what does my life and my worship practically look like? Kind of like a cessationist church because there's not a whole lot of charismatic activity going along. And the third camp are the cessationists. And although it's not admitted by many charismatic believers, most continuationists will admit that cessationism has been the majority view of the church. It's, it's been the majority view throughout the history of the church until a couple of important events at the beginning of the 20th century. Cessationism, in fact, has been the dominant and overwhelming position to such an extent that it was largely an unexamined presupposition through most of the periods of church history. Cessationism says that the miraculous gifts in these chapters are limited to the apostolic period and that these sign gifts ceased to be given once the church was well established in the second and third generation. Now these are important differences depending on what one believes about the exercise of these gifts. And in fact, those differences can sometimes lead to division in church fellowship. If you believe that a person must be baptized by the Holy Spirit after they are baptized in water, and that they must give evidence of that second baptism by speaking in tongues, you're not going to be satisfied here, where we are not going to affirm that. We're going to say that water baptism and spirit baptism are not the same thing, but they are associated with one another. They are happening at the same time. That when you see water baptism, you're seeing spirit baptism. And how do you know who's been spirit baptized? You're looking for water baptism. That you're not dividing or divorcing these two, but you're seeing the visible and the invisible aspects of the two. If you believe that you must speak in tongues or prophesy in the church assembly, then you're probably not going to be happy here for very long because the leadership is not going to allow you to do that. We think that would be unbiblical. We, we think that would disrupt the assembly. So sometimes those kind of divisions are inevitable. And we should also point out that, that some Pentecostalists, by no means all, are what we call oneness Pentecostals. And they would deny the Trinity. They would affirm what is historically called modalism and say that the one God is sometimes manifest as a father, sometimes as a son, sometimes as the spirit. And they would deny the historic doctrine of the Trinity. That would be a view that would be outside the boundaries of historic orthodoxy. So sometimes division is necessary. But all of that being said... We've been very blessed here at ROPC to welcome and receive many who have come from charismatic backgrounds or those who have continuationist convictions. Now, not all of them have stayed, but a number of you have. Many of you have, in fact, and that's been for our mutual profit and growth in grace. And notwithstanding the fact that, that sometimes there are barriers to fellowship, as we already said, differences regarding these gifts do not have to divide believers in the church if we are willing to live at peace. That does not mean these aren't important issues. Of course they are. But so long as these differences do not disrupt corporate worship or involve some denial of fundamental Christian orthodoxy or compel someone else to violate his conscience, 
These are matters that we can disagree about in the hope that we will continue to study and learn and grow in a greater understanding of God's Word. Now, I've taken too long already working through this introduction. There's two things that I still need to say, but let me, let me say them briefly. I am a cessationist. That's not going to come as a shock to anybody. This is a cessationist church. Our confession of faith affirms uh, cessationism uh, as, 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 as our understanding of this text. Uh, our practice, our worship is going to be from a cessationist standpoint. So that's the way that I'm going to work through these chapters. But I do hope that as I work through these chapters over the next several months, that you will see that although we believe these gifts have ceased to be given in the way that they were then, and that they are not normative for the church today, we are not denying in any way, shape, or form that God is still at work in His church, that the Spirit still indwells us all, that God is still working grace within us, enabling us to do anything and everything that we do to His glory and in obedience to His will. God still can and does heal His servants, even by supernatural means, above and beyond the natural, ordinary means which human beings can predict and understand. God answers prayer, sometimes in dramatic and inexplicable ways. He gives knowledge and insight and wisdom. He gives abilities and competencies that transcend an individual's natural talents and limitations. He can provide opportunities and clarity and expressions that are need, needed at a moment in time that you know did not come from you. And some people will say, but, but pastor, that, that's prophecy, or that's healing, or that, that's this or that gift. And I would simply say, well, we could disagree on that. I don't think that that's the gift that Paul is discussing here because I'm not a prophet and I can't lay my hands on someone and heal. But I lay my hands on people every week and pray that God will heal them and sometimes he does. And, and sometimes I can't explain how he does. We're, we're not praying with the, the, the idea that the only hope that this person has is Tylenol. We believe that God answers prayer and still works in his church. And we believe that God can give supernatural wisdom and insight and understanding and, and abilities above and beyond what we naturally possess. So when I say I'm a cessationist, and when I say I think these gifts have ceased, I am not suggesting that the Trinity has now been revised to involve the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. We still believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church and that He is still working in wonderful ways. But let me finish with this. I think there's a lot to learn here. I think there's a lot to dig into in these chapters that we will be able to unpack over time. But what I want you to see as the overriding point that Paul is making is that we have organic communion with Christ in a spirit-filled body. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely a human organization. It is a heavenly organism. It is not only a social gathering of persons who have common interest in the teachings of Jesus. It is the spirit-drawn, spirit-renewed, and spirit-filled gathering of God's chosen ones from among all nations, those who belong to the kingdom of God that will outlast all of the kingdoms of men in this world. The unity of the body, the presence of the spirit in all of its members, and the mutual edification of every believer is what the Spirit is at work to do then and now until Jesus comes again. And that is what Paul is emphasizing in these passages. We are not here to glorify ourselves. We are here to glorify God and to edify one another. Whatever gifts or abilities or talents we may have have been given for the good of the body, not so that others may admire us, 
but so that we may be useful to our brethren and in the work of God's kingdom. We are not merely in the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We are organically connected to our Savior and therefore to each other. It is a covenantal, spiritual, and mystical connection to be sure, but it is also a real, objective, and organic one nonetheless. Just as the scripture describes us as branches in a a fig tree or vines in a vineyard, here we find ourselves described as parts of a body of which Jesus is the head. And that's what we need to see, is that when we confess in just a couple of minutes that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And it's not ROPC. And it's not the OPC. And it's not the churches of Napark. It's the body of Jesus. And everyone who trusts in Jesus is part of that body. Wherever we see a believer in Jesus, we see a brother or sister. We are part of the same family, even if we do not worship in the same congregation or worship in exactly the same way. Even if we don't have the exact same historical and confessional tradition. And even if we think ours is righter than theirs. If they're a believer in Jesus, they are part of that body. And so I want to emphasize today that whatever you believe about the Holy Spirit and these gifts to believers, you must believe that he does what he does in order that the unity of the body of Christ might be maintained. That however you understand these gifts, the point of these gifts and every other gift of God by his Spirit is to magnify the glory of Christ, not undermine it. It is to affirm and uphold and extend the unity of the body of Christ, not to divide it. Does pride in our doctrinal convictions glorify Christ? It does not any more than pride in tongue speaking and prophecy and gifts of healing might have then. Like the Corinthians, we may at times be more interested in being right about a particular issue than in doing right toward our brother. We may think that we are the strong brother. We are the spiritual one. And in a limited context, that might even be true. Maybe you are right in what you believe. Maybe your worship is purer and your faith is better informed than many of your brothers. But if that is so, that is a reason to show patience to your brother and to love him and to suffer long with him and to encourage him so that he might grow. And that is what you are going to see Paul saying over and over in these chapters. He's not addressing our modern charismatic controversy, although he will say many things that help us to do so. He is addressing that greater unity that we have in the body of Christ that we are called to live in light of. That is part of what it means to do all things decently and in order. And above all, it is what it means to serve the Lord with the Spirit in love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God and Father, as we tackle a very challenging section of your word. In the coming weeks, we pray that your spirit would bless us. We need his blessing and help, wisdom, insight, understanding, O God, to know and to rightly confess uh, that which you have made known to us in your word. So we pray, O God, that you would apply this text and its truths, its precious lessons to our hearts, to our lives, and that you would grow us in love, in grace, in faith, in hope, and in holiness and in our mutual affection toward one another as we are members together of that same body of which our Lord is head. Bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.